Everyone, welcome to the Midweek Podcast presented by our friends at Factory Backing, which is a graphic company owned by our friend Jared Austin, and it's celebrating its 20th year in business. Uh, they can have design proofs to you in two to three days, print another day. Basically, you could have your graphics in about a week. So check them out at factorybacking.com. And uh, to celebrate their anniversary, they're selling stuff for 50% off right now. Anyway, I'm joined by my good friend Paul Parabinos of uh, Renthal USA, formerly of many other companies, former factory mechanic. Um, so, hey, thanks for taking time out of your day to come join us today. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a gorgeous place here? Yeah, we're, um, we're stoked. We've been here since, oh, it's our one-year anniversary here now. Very cool. Yeah. yeah, no, really cool place. I, I um, Yeah, I'm impressed nice. with your kind of headquarters. So, uh, it's funny. I've been a journalist for 30-some-odd years now. And every person I train or bring up that goes to the races, I always say, hey, try to make a friend in every pit. You know, like, usually it's a mechanic is the easiest. Then you can go in and say, hey, what's up? And, you know, you have someone to feel comfortable going into the pit to talk to you, right? And for me, with you, you were my friend at Pro Circuit. Oh, cool. Right? So uh, you've always been super approachable and super friendly and, and quick to share insight or secret or something. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I've gotten that I'm not approachable before. So oh, no, I, I like that. you always were, you know? So uh, when I first met you, you were uh, Dean Wilson's mechanic at Monster Energy Split Fire Pro Circuit Kawasaki. So before that, though, you were an accomplished motocross racer yourself. I think you had some success in Canada, right? Yeah, kind of. Accomplished, um, I guess you could say that. Maybe more than the average guy. Um, I have raced pretty much all over all over yeah in Canada um I've done the amateur scene right so I started racing when I was really young at four mm -hmm. and I've been to Loretta's 13 times now I think <laughs> at this point so I've been there a whole lot I've raced that's including the recent vet trips right? that's including about four or five vet trips yeah um 10 years though as an amateur like I went every year basically my parents would close their business and and that was our summer vacation before where I went back to school and and then at the end we started doing Ponca City as well and we would make that all night drive from after racing Saturday at Ponca to be there for practice and sign up, you know, Sunday at Loretta's to sign up and then and, and practice is Monday. But yeah, <clears throat> um, I've just been in and around motorcycles, I guess, my entire life and, and I love it. I've made it, um, yeah, it's just my passion and, and you know, my friends know anything that I'm passionate about. I want to try to do the absolute best I can with it or at it. Um, that's just who I am and, and, and yeah, being involved in racing my whole life and my career, um, <clears throat> turned professional at a young age, you know, tried to race a few supercrosses, not much. At the same time I was turning professional, my dad's health wasn't getting great. So I really didn't want to see him working on bikes and taking me around the country and stuff. So I only really tried the pro thing for about a year. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, I've always <clears throat> admired people that do that. will try pro. Like I have a test rider, Rene Garcia. He's, made an honest go at Supercross and Nationals one year, and was like, I'm not going to cut it at this level. <laughs> I'm not going to be one of the chosen few, you know? Yeah. So he went to school. Yeah. Same with, remember Nick Paluzzi and yeah. Talman LaFontaine <laughs> walked away from Supercross and did off-road, but I always think that's admirable and very mature to be able to say that. Yeah, and honestly, I think it, I owed it to my parents. Like, honestly, I just... um 
you know, and I try to find the highest level in anything I do. I'm doing it now with my son in football, and, and I, I'm kind of trying to do it in bicycles now a little yeah. bit with, the, you know, I'm dabbling in mountain bikes, and I always try to find the absolute highest level I can get to. So I want to see what it's like. Mm-hmm. So I have something to shoot for. And, um, <clears throat> and yeah, I guess that's kind of where it kind of started with motocross and me. And, um, and uh, yeah, just... Okay, so what <laughs> year did you race pro? Uh, probably, like... I want to say I tried for the Daytona Supercross in 2000, maybe, or maybe 2001. It was on a YZ125. Um, <clears throat> and then the following year, I was on BSY Yamaha, which is like a, a Yamaha yeah. support shop out of Florida. Tyson Hadsell was my teammate. And I did uh, the entire East Coast Series that year, I think, the entire East Coast Series. And then um, was going to do, went to Hangtown. I think that was the first re- outdoor national that year, Hangtown. And then the truck crashed on the way from Hangtown. I want to say it was Mount Morris after that. And my race bike was stuck in the BSY truck for what seemed like multiple months, I think, because we were waiting, we were waiting for insurance adjusters, right. To get insurance claim on the truck. The truck was beat to shit, but, but having it crashed, like, you know, it was advantageous for them to get insurance. So, um, didn't really do anything else that year in nationals. And then I think the following year I tried to, uh, I did about five nationals with, uh, my, my buddy, um, who actually worked at BSY at the time, his name was Matt Bigos. Mm-hmm. And he is actually the guy that was injured in the Travis Pastrana Corvette crash. Yeah, okay. And that was him and I on the road. We were, we had just done a Loretta Lynn's regional, my final year at Loretta's. Um, and then we drove to the next national was Bud's Creek. And yeah, stayed at Travis's house and that whole thing went down. So that year basically was my kind of last year trying. And then I, mm-hmm. after Matt got hurt, my dad came on the road with me and we did one race. And again, I could see that, you know, his health was, it was a struggle to be on the road and racing. So then I was kind of like, you know what, maybe it's just time to pivot and grow up mm-hmm. and stop wasting my time or delaying the inevitable inevitable. and uh, yeah, started my career. So I think I want to say I stopped chasing the dream probably around... 22 years old, 23 already, and then... So you didn't go to Canada to race? I did go to Canada. Um, that was probably at the very end of my amateur pro... Some, probably somewhere around 01, 02. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember what year I was there. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I remember JSR was my teammate. I was actually filling in for Derek Fisher, who got hurt. Um, Shane Lusk was on the team as well. He was like my teammate on East Coast. And uh, yeah, it was like Randy Belade was racing that year, and Donnie McGordy was actually the champion that year, so whatever year he won. But, um, but yeah, it was actually, it was cool to race for Blackfoot because that was kind of the highest end team that I had ever gotten to be a part yeah. of as a racer. Um, <clears throat> but it was super last minute. I was riding a Yamaha. I flew to Canada, rode a Honda on Saturday and raced it on Sunday. Uh-huh. So it was super unprepared. Um, and I did what I kind of did a lot of my career. Got a great start and faded. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, that was kind of the, the height of my racing career, I guess. And then after that, I just pivoted and started working on bikes, I guess. Did you go to school? Yeah, I was going to school during this whole time. I was also dabbling a little bit in pit bikes. I want to say there was a big pit bike kind of a, you know, the, oh, yeah. you know, the, the big, the movement. Yeah. And, and, um, where I lived at the time in Orlando, I was going to UCF, um, for college and we had a little pit bike track. Uh, it was called o- o- OWC Orlando water sports complex. And they would have money races there every Friday or Saturday, whatever day it was. Yeah. And I would, you know, you'd win both classes and you'd leave for 600 bucks every weekend. That was decent money to me in college. So I was doing that. And then, um, at the same time I started flying to the races on the weekend and just kind of being grips and graphics guy for, for Butler brothers MX, like Uh when they were first a Honda team, like early, early in their kind of 
yeah, genesis of a team. <clears throat> um, how did you transition into uh, factory team mechanic? Like, did um, you, was it just mechanical knowledge came through the years of racing yourself, or did you do the MMI thing? Yeah, no, like, so the path for me was never MMI. Um, I just, I was a racer myself, right? Like, I had ridden and raced everywhere. I've ridden in every stadium and, and every amateur race at this point. So all my experience was in racing. And I really think that's valuable to be a really good motocross, supercross professional mechanic. You have to have some race knowledge. Um, you can learn all the rest of the stuff. And uh, I guess I just, yeah, I took to it. And um, <clears throat> I guess the the year when I really started to put some feelers out there and, and want to progress in my mechanic career, I guess, was uh, 08 when I had Kyle Cunningham at um, Butler Brothers. And we had a good year. I think he got fifth at Bud's Creek. So we started to like get some attention. I also worked for Matt Bonnie this, that year because I was Cunningham on the West and Bonnie on the East. So I did all, and, uh, that was the year he got a third in the Daytona Supercross, that mud race behind Villo and, uh, Kennard. So had some good success as a mechanic on a privateer team. And it kind of drove me to like, I was like, I want to try to win some races or I want to, you know, be a part of a championship. So mm -hmm. started bugging Mitch and started walking by the pro circuit truck. And I had a friend there. His name was Sean. He was working for, um, <clears throat> I'll say he was working for can't remember who was before Weimer. Might have been just Weimer was there in 08 maybe or I can't remember. Maybe Jessman. He was working for Jessman in 08. That's it. And then um yeah, I just kept on kind of like talking to Mitch uh, after every national I'd go and see him and then uh after the last one he said come out to the shop and yeah, check it out so we can talk to you. So I think I did that in September. And yeah, they offered me a job and Mitch just said be out here October 1. So I was living in Florida at the time and packed up on my Packed up all my stuff and drove to California. Uh -huh. And was Dino your first guy? No, actually, Ryan Morris was my first guy. Oh, okay. So, yeah, and he actually wasn't even signed. At the time, I was trying to get my job there. Again, this was around late September. Uh, Mo wasn't even on the team yet. And then my buddy Sean was like, hey, we finally hired a guy for you. <clears throat> and I was like, oh, really? Who is it? And he's like, well, he almost won a title last year, to the East Coast. And that was Mo when he was on YOT. So, um, yeah, and he, we are still really good friends to this day. I actually used to race Ryan growing up. So I have a picture of us going through the first turn at Loretta Lynn's like in 98 or 99 or something. We were both 80, 14, 15. And then, yeah, fast forward years later, I'm working for him as a mechanic. So, yeah. um, that was, a, that was a great year. He was on the podium, I want to say almost every weekend in Supercross. Um, <clears throat> outdoors, I think he was hurt most of the year. And then year after that, 2010 was when I got the number 108, Dean Wilson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, those years had to be a lot of fun. It's funny now to think he finally grew out of that voice. Yeah, Dean has. Yeah, voice, but I mean, he's like normal. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. His voice was so high; he was just younger back then, right? And yeah. balls hadn't dropped, I guess. But um, but honestly, yeah, that was. Uh, I learned so much there, and and not just mechanically, but life wise. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that's where I learned my work ethic was from Mitch and Pro Circuit. And because it's a sink or swim environment, at least it was yeah. for me back then. And it was basically like, get on board and figure it out or you're not going to be here. And um, <clears throat> man, the bikes were amazing. The like Just how quickly I learned uh, about so much about the motorcycle. Because when I went there, I, I was blatantly honest with Mitch in my interview. And I said, hey, I've never done anything below a top end on a motorcycle in my life. And he appreciated that. He liked my honesty. Um, he liked that I finished college. It showed that I finished something. And he said, actually, that's great that you don't know that much. He's like, because we're going to teach you our way. He's like, but I love that you were a racer yourself. So you understand the, you know, all the intangibles of racing that really yeah. you can't learn in a dealership. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, I mean, 
learned so much from my buddy Aaron Johnson, who was in the bay next to me there, and it was it was Kyle Bentley and Vince Bereni and and uh, I mentioned Aaron Johnson and Sean Irwin and Zach White and all these guys that I worked with Bones. They all went on to do like incredible things in our sport. So like we really had an all star cast there for a while, and our bikes were unreal, like yeah. the best motorcycle on the track, and nobody could argue it. <laughs> was uh, was you know you finished college and then decided on to race and then went to be a race mechanic, won won races, won championships. Was that like a, a life stepping stone for you? I mean, I'm obviously looking back now, it was, but at the time, absolutely, was it, or were you thinking, I'm going to do this for a while? No, absolutely. I never <clears throat> dreamed or desired to be a mechanic growing up. Yeah. I um, and I didn't even really desire to be a professional. Like I didn't, I didn't see myself as like I was like, oh, I need to get into a factory. I was just. I, I wanted to do what was in front of me and do the best I could, but yeah. I didn't have the work ethic back then is what I, what I learned at pro circuit, not just work wise, but you know, exercise wise and being around all those good athletes. I saw that I was not doing nearly enough when I was a, a racer myself to be successful. So, um, yeah, I just, I learned so much there and, uh, you probably learned some sports psychology having to talk Oh yeah, yeah. Because you're everything, and and that's what I really loved at Pro Circuit. Like those guys still build their engines. Um, I mean, I was Dean had a you know three practice engines. He had a 450, a practice 250, then one in Florida, then a race bike, three race engines, and you do all of it at Pro Circuit. Mm -hmm. So you really feel a lot of you know it's it's one for glory, one for failure type thing, and um, you so you feel a lot of accomplishment when your bike does good or your rider does good because you've built the whole thing you've done everything yeah. there so I really like that and um again I learned so much over there and it it wasn't really that I wanted to be a mechanic but I just wanted to be good at whatever I was doing at the time but that absolutely was my um transitional period from college and racing to career profession and kind of like my start in the industry and uh yeah that's how I met you that's how I met everyone I know in this industry was early on at, at pro circuit um, because mechanics get, you know, a lot of people, they don't say they don't get respected. I think they give a lot of respect because no one realize or everyone realizes how hard yeah. the job is. Right. Um, so yeah, from there, I just knew I didn't want to be a mechanic forever. I achieved some goals that I wanted to achieve. Um, I didn't see a big future for myself in my career at pro circuit. So I started looking elsewhere. Yeah. I remember one thing you said to me was like, I'm not just a mechanic. I finished college. Yeah. <laughs> I remember you said that to me. And I was like, oh, sick. Yeah, and I was proud of that, right? Because there's not a lot of, you know, and there's not a lot of people in our industry that have finished college. And 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 I think to, to be a part of uh, winning a championship, I've won at Loretta Lynn's, and I have a college diploma. I don't think there's many people in the industry that can say that. Yeah. So that's kind of like my unique trifecta of skills, I guess, that I can put on my resume. But, um, but what yeah. What was your <laughs> studies in? Uh, I actually have a major in legal studies because at the time I wanted to be a sports agent. Okay. That's what I was thinking. But as I got further into the sport and I met some sports <laughs> agents and I saw kind of how, yeah, how, you know, how you have to do that job. I didn't want to be that type of person. So, um, I started transitioning in a bit, but when you're, when you're so far in college, like it's not so easy to pivot, right? Like I changed yeah. my major a few times. First it was marketing and that didn't seem like uh, enough to impress my parents, I guess. So I changed and then it was business management for a while. And then it was, ended up being legal studies. So it took me five years to finish college because I changed my major a couple times, but I ended up graduating with a, um, 
a major in legal studies and a minor in criminal justice. Mm. It was two classes to get the minor. So yeah. that's why I did criminal justice. But yeah, at the time I was thinking, oh, I'll be a sports agent because that's something that I can use my knowledge of the sport and my education to hopefully, yeah, make a career for myself. All right, when Dean <clears throat> graduated the 250 class, he went to go a 450 ride with Jeff Ward Racing. I remember you went with him briefly and you were like, whoa, this team's not for me. And you, you went back to <clears throat> Pro Circuit, right? I did. And how long were you there and who did you work for? So, you mean when I went back to PC? Yeah. Um, so, I guess to kind of make that story make sense, it was, <laughs> Dean was the hottest commodity in the, in the sport at the time, right? Yeah. Like, he was the best 250 guy, he was getting a lot of offers, he had a great JGR offer, he tested that bike, he had a, um, uh, a good KTM offer, but it was for a lot less money. Mm -hmm. And then, at the 11th hour, Jeff Ward Racing came into the picture, and it was um, supposed to be factory motorcycles, and... And it was a lot of money. And, and it was a place that he could take me. And every place I was able to go. J-Bone offered me a job. Roger offered me a job. They all wanted Dean. And Dean wanted me to go with him. At the time, I had just bought a house. And I was probably... I don't say... I don't want to say my wife was pregnant. But we were probably trying. Yeah. And uh, I just told Dean. I was like, I don't want to go to North Carolina. I don't want to go to JGR. I don't want to move to North Carolina. So that kind of... He basically ruled that option out on my account because I think he liked the bike. He was a taller, big guy, and it was a lot of money. Yeah. It, was, it was his highest offer. And then, um, <clears throat> yeah, I kind of was telling him I think he should go the KTM route. I think it's the best team. Um, but it was, I mean, we're talking three hundred grand less of, of, of money, right, for him. Yeah. So that's a big decision for him as well. So ultimately, he chose JWR. Um, and, yeah, I went down there for a day starting October 1st. And uh, Paul Delorier was down there. Oscar Werdeman was down there. And, um, yeah, just started working on some bikes that they had there and kind of getting a feel for what was going to happen, what the plan was. And it was all very different from <clears throat> what I thought it was going to be and what we Dean and I were being told. Yeah. So I just had a really, really bad feeling because this was, uh, again, this was early October. And I told Dean, I was like, hey, if if what I'm feeling and seeing and hearing and, and thinking will happen, if it does happen, it's probably going to happen like November, December. And I was like, and I'm going to be in trouble because like I got a mortgage, like I, I can't make this mistake. And I was like, you, someone's going to hire you. Like you're one of the best guys in the sport. You're going to get a job, but it's not going to be that simple for me. So that was tough. Um, <clears throat> Dean did not want me to, to do it, but I simply said, Hey, I, I don't feel comfortable. And I went back to Mitch after one day at JWR one day, one day. Wow. And I said, uh, I said, Hey Mitch, like, I don't think it's what I thought it was going to be can I have my job back? And he gave me a raise and he gave me a two year deal. Wow. So at the time, Dean wasn't on the team. Uh, at the time, Blake Baggett's mechanic left to go to Geico. Blake was the best guy on the team. I was essentially going to be the senior mechanic again. Mm -hmm. So he said, work for Blake. So I worked for Baggett for a year. Okay. And from Baggett for a year, is that when you went to Pro Taper? Yeah. Yeah. So Dean actually ended up being on the team that year. And that was kind of awkward, right? Because we were kind of not speaking at the time because I made a decision that he wasn't, um, didn't like. Yeah. So that was weird. And then, uh, yeah, we got to the end of, I want to say this was the end of 2013, 2013. And, uh, it was, you know, Dean and I had reconciled by then we were friends again and but I also had Blake asking me to be his mechanic again and then Dean asking me to be his mechanic again. So I was kind of stuck between the two big dogs on the team essentially. And at the same time, I was just a bit burnt on being a mechanic. I was like, man, I accomplished kind of 
a lot of cool things, won a lot of races, won a championship. I don't want to be a mechanic forever. When is the right time to pivot? And yeah, an opportunity came up through Nick Way, a, a friend, uh, through Dave Casella, who was managing CSG at the time, Corona Sports Group. And uh, they needed somebody to be the marketing manager for Answer Apparel. So I actually oh, left. Answer. Yeah, I actually left Pro Circuit and started at Answer in October 1, 2013. And then my buddy Charles Castle, who's now become a great friend of mine, he was managing Pro Taper at the time. He left to go um, uh, pursue a venture with Tag One Industries. And Dave said I needed somebody to run Pro Taper and give him my background as a mechanic. And, and also, uh, my dad was a machinist growing up. So I knew a lot about metals hard and, and hard parts and machining because that was my first job. I, I worked in my dad's machine shop. So I was a natural fit for Pro Taper. And uh, so I slid over to Pro Taper in, I want to say, January 2014. And then I want to say Dave was unfortunately let go maybe a few months later mm -hmm. and I was essentially handed a brand and didn't have a boss didn't have nothing and I was hired as the marketing manager and I simply just took ownership of the brand and kind of like ran a business for a while with yeah. no boss with no leadership for about a year and I learned so much so it was the first time I had seen financial statements and looked at margins and really started to understand the other side of this industry, the, the side that, in my opinion, drives it all. Like, it's yeah. not racing so much that drives it all, right? That's a big expense for a lot of these brands, but sales is what makes these, you know, keeps these brands in business. So I started to learn so much about that, and then I started to become this international guy and, and working with all the international distributors, and before you know it, I was, yeah, I was a brand manager pro taper, I guess. So there you <clears> also <throat> were in charge of uh, production and sourcing materials, et cetera. Yeah, not sourcing materials, but um, in the beginning it was just marketing, right? So it's advertising, it's it's race support, it's it's all all those functions, kind of commercial functions. But then it became product development and, and product management too. So I was, I mean, I made a, I took a trip to Taiwan to visit all the Pro Taper vendors, get personal relationships with the, all those guys. Um, a really close mentor of mine at the time, Scott Boyer, um, kind of took me under his wing because he was a paid consultant for Pro Taper at the time, and he was really my leadership. Um, Scott's an awesome dude and if you don't know who he is he's the inventor of the first plastic motocross boot the HRP flak jack chest protector the inventor of the first pull roll off film system okay. um, and the inventor of the pro taper handlebar which started out as an answer wow. answer handlebar what, so what a resume the guy is I'm telling you if there's someone you should interview it's this guy and, and I'm still friends to, with him to this day um, he connects me with so many people in Asia and Taiwan around the world and vendor wise and stuff. And he's just a really, really smart guy. And I kind of leaned on him for advice through all of it because he had been with Pro Taper since the start. He was with Answer since the start when Answer was making silencers and making mountain bike forks and all that. And when it was a 70 plus million dollar brand. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> how that brand has changed and how things have changed. But, but anyway, yeah, I, I learned so much through Scott. And during my time at Pro Taper, I essentially was, again, handed a business to run. And I learned I learned a ton. Okay, so to best of my knowledge, you created two brand new products while you were at ProTaper. Maybe more, but the, the lock-on grip with the channel and then the mini handlebars. Yeah, yeah. So I did a lot of stuff when I was at ProTaper, actually. like um, I did a one-third waffle grip. I did uh, expanded the neon range. I did all the colored bar pads that you see out of ProTaper. That was me. I did the micro bar. Um, I was part of the uh, what's the other one you said behind besides micro bar? Lock on grip yeah, channel. we call it a clamp on it. A pro taper. That was me too. And then and then yeah, my last kind of project there oh, the was the Sella device. The, yeah. the the which I I came up with a name for, which is a self engaged launch assist. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, 
I had a contract that any sort of IP that I was a part of or invented when I was there remained ownership of the brand. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was at, I, I really enjoyed my time at Pro Taper and loved being part of Tucker Rocky in that organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you know, that organization went through a lot of stuff. Um, also during that time, I was, I almost went back to being a mechanic again for Dean Wilson when he, yeah, well, you, you <laughs> helped him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is actually before that. So when he, when he went to, um, Red Bull KTM, Roger again offered me a job to come be his mechanic. Uh Um, and it was good money and that was the team you wanted to work for, for the most part, right? Like they, it was in Marietta for me. It was, um, yeah, you didn't do engines, like just obviously a fantastic team. Right. So I was like, man, if this is a, in in my opinion, if you want to be a mechanic and in Supercross, it's, it's KTM or factory Cowie for me, Mm -hmm. like are the best jobs. Um, so yeah, I kicked that around for a while and ultimately I went into my boss's office who at the time was Phil Davey. You probably know that name. Um, and I said, Hey Phil, like, uh, Roger called me and offered me a job to work for Dean as a mechanic. Like, I think, I think that's what I want to do. And he simply said, you do not want to do that. Like you have a enormous future on this side of the sport. And he's like, and I won't let you go. And I was like, he's like, so what will it take to keep you here? And that's really when I made a really big jump in, yeah, uh, salary. And they made me the brand manager instead of the marketing manager. And, and basically it was like, hey, here's this brand. Keep doing what you're doing. Because every year I was there, the brand grew. I tried to improve margin every year I was there. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of, I guess that's what kind of reignited my love for Pro Taper. And I stayed there again until we started going through all the bankruptcy stuff that yeah. Tucker's been through. And, yeah. And man, I learned a whole heap of other stuff <laughs> through that as well. Um, you, what's pretty cool is that like you invented all these things, right? And that's because you're a rider yourself. <clears throat> you know the demands you put on the bike and troubles with certain <clears throat> products. And yeah. so you, you improve upon that. Yeah, honestly, like, um, and again, as we start to talk about my time at Tucker, um, I began getting involved in a lot of high-end meetings with high-end people and suits and fancy resumes. And and when you talk about being an enthusiast, that's really what is your value in this industry, I've yeah. come to, I've come to yeah. learn. And it is paramount. They, you know, so many times at Tucker, I've seen them put people in positions based purely on a resume and not on endemic experience in our sport. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, you've been a purchaser for... Dillard's come work for us. You've been selling toilet seats. Come be our national sales manager. And that doesn't work in our industry. So I'm no longer intimidated by the fancy suits and the fancy resumes and all these big meetings that I've been in before, because if you're not an enthusiast, like you're not going to, you're not going to run circles around me anymore. Like it's like, you have to be an enthusiast in the sport. You have to know your dealers, know your customer, know the sport, know all these little types of things. If you want to be an inventor or a product developer, you have, you have to know those things. And a lot of times those, fancy resume guys don't have that knowledge <clears throat> the whole time i've been in a position as editor uh to decide on who i hire so <clears throat> way back to i think mx razor which was the first magazine i launched it was my belief that you have to hire even the ad guys and stuff you have to hire an enthusiast the person that rides because <clears throat> loving this sport and wanting to do the sport <clears throat> even on your free time is going to make you produce a better product a hundred percent. Yeah. And I mean, and you know, everyone in, Oh, I'm sorry. Everyone in our industry has a hat rock on their head for the most part, a hat rack, right? We're all doing multiple jobs and multiple things, but so you have to have that love for it. And, um, and 
yeah, I, I would say all of us that are successful in this industry are enthusiasts first and businessmen second. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that way in the dealer market, right? Like, you know, a good friend of mine, Jeremy Schism, who runs the AEO race team in that in that kind of a network of stores. I think he's a fantastic businessman and he runs great dealerships, but he was an enthusiast first. Like yeah. he didn't go to business school or nothing, but I yeah. think that's what really makes our industry unique. Um, and that's like where my value is. That's where your value is, right? So uh, yeah, I love, I, I just love this sport and what it's given me. And, and yeah, it's just been because I enjoy it and love it. Okay, so you had switched to Renthal. Was that, was that a tough thing to do? Because like... <clears throat> Like, okay, when Transworld was shut down, mm-hmm. I was I was asked numerous times to go have a talk with the people in Valencia. Yeah. So I went up there, probably a two-hour talk, interview, whatever. But I decided, <laughs> dude, I, I buried them for the last mm-hmm. 19 years. I'm not going to go work there. Yeah. You know, but like, is it hard to go to a competitor, someone, someone that's been a competitor, or... For me, in this case, it wasn't. It was very, very easy. Um, number one being, it's a brand that I've been a fan of my entire life. I rode yeah. for Renthal my whole life. I've always identified as, when it comes to handlebars, sprockets, like Renthal's number one. And that's what I always wanted on my motorcycle. So uh, to me, it was going from Pepsi to Coke. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of how I look at Pro Taper and, and Renthal. They are number one, number two globally, but Renthal's number one. Like I, I've seen the sales of both and that's how I measure a brand is not, mm-hmm. is, is based on your sales, your revenue, your profit. Um, so, and at the time I was going through so much at Tucker and, and meaning I, I was going through it with the organization. So we had gone through a bankruptcy. That was awful. Um, I learned so much about business and honestly, a lot of the ugly side of business through all that, that I really, really disliked. I became very frustrated with private equity, um, with the board, and just kind of the decisions they were making, you know, they weren't, if we needed a national sales manager, we weren't going and trying to poach or steal the national sales manager from Western or Tucker. And in my opinion, that's what you do as a racer, because not only are you strengthening your team, but you're weakening your competitor. Mm-hmm. They continue to put people in these positions of power that, you know, to use my analogy from earlier, came from the gun industry or came from the toilet seat industry or mm-hmm. weren't enthusiasts. And that doesn't work in our industry. So um, really the writing became pretty clear on the wall at Tucker that this was, this is not, I'm not going to be able to continue to do my job in the way I want to do it. And I think by that point I had developed a fairly good reputation for myself and for the brand. I think pro taper was in a really good spot at the the time. And I saw my inability to continue to manage it in that fashion. So during that same time, I had always been friends with the Renthal guys. If you remember for a while, Renthal was part of mag Tucker. So we would be sitting in meetings looking at each other's sales on the same screen in a group of 40 people of upper management, right? Over you know, reviewing the brand. So I had a relationship with those guys. It was weird for a while when we were owned by the same company, but um, at some point they just started talking to me and they said, Hey, we think you're working for the wrong brand. And it was a work from home gig, which I was commuting from Marietta to Irvine over Ortega highway, which you know how big of a drag that is, right? I was doing that four days a week. And so I was spending two to three hours a day on the road. And uh, yeah, Renthal said, we'll pay you more. You'll likely have less responsibility because again, I was doing everything at Pro Taper. Where at Renthal, I'm assisting pods of teams basically in every department, engineering and quality and all those things, right? So um, really I would have less to manage. It would be better money. It would be for a brand that I love, a privately owned brand at that, not private equity. 
a brand that's been around for 50 years and I just yeah. thought it was it's it was the it was an opportunity I could never pass up and and jobs at Renthal don't become available often and now I know that because when I first joined Renthal um, my colleague now Dave Kaiser he's been there for 23 years he said welcome to Renthal he's like you now work at the best brand in this industry and I was and like that is he all. came from Pro Taper yeah. so Renthal uh, took me from Pro Taper, weakened Pro Taper, and took Dave from Pro Taper and weakened Pro Taper at the time, right? So again, strategic moves, moves that I, I would do myself if I was a business owner. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, and just I'm so thankful to be in the position I'm in, and and honestly, all the mechanic work and all the things that I've done in this industry have gotten me to you know led me to this point, and I'm just proud to be a part of Renthal, and I just mm -hmm. I, I love my job because. I'm involved in racing. I set my own schedule. I'm, in, I'm included in, you know, product development and marketing. And I have a lot of say and discretion as to what I do and, and the direction we take the brand. Um, so, man, I, I again, I, I'm, I probably sound cocky and arrogant a lot of times when I speak about Renthal. But when you go and visit the factory and work with the people there, and I mean, we have we have people that like there's a husband and wife in in assembly who who's daughter is married to one of the engineers and the, like there's so much family stuff and, and so many people there have been there 20 plus years that i'm just very proud to be a part of that brand and henry's the owner again right henry is a uh, part owner so okay. we have a new ownership group henry is part of it um andrew renshaw may he rest in peace his his widow is also part of it and then my direct report our general manager he's part of the ownership group and then our chairman is part of the ownership group so four people own the entire brand and um yeah just all great people and it's so cool being in meetings that start with hey did you watch the race last night or you know it's not just you know my in my last few years at tucker it was uh, a term you probably have heard it was analysis paralysis yeah it was i was getting a new boss every eight months it seemed so i'm constantly having to re-explain what i do how i do it how do i go about things how i report and all these and, and different ways to report and all. it just became so much that we weren't like working on the business. We were working in the business, right? Just getting through day by day, not tackling projects or setting five-year plans and all these things that I think you need to do to grow a business. It was just keeping your head above water. Yeah. Uh, I met Henry <clears throat> with Jim Hale in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I remember back then going, man, this guy is a genius. He is. And he was explaining <clears throat> to me why the bars are better and stuff. And, and I'm thinking back, I can remember when Renthal Bars first came out, and before that, it was steel bars, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you're going to laugh, but I had, I had a pair, of, my first pair of Renthals was on my Kawasaki three-wheeler, mm. you know? But I remember I had them, and my dad bought them for me just because he thought they looked cool. Yeah. And I remember I was at the race, and on the starting line, uh, the starter at Indian Dunes, Chris Johnson, you might know him, but he came up to me and said, how are those bars? <laughs> those bars and I was like wow I don't know. they look cool <laughs> I didn't know you know yeah but uh to think back to what we used to ride on like when I started riding and yeah what bars have become and now like you guys have the is it what is it called the big big one that bar 36 five bar 36 that bar 36 yeah. um it's just pretty amazing right yeah I mean that's the evolution of handlebar technology kind of right and 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 how it started uh Henry was a trials rider himself right loved riding trials and you obviously fall down a lot in trials and he was bending a handlebar a lot and um <clears throat> in Andrew Renshaw's parents shed was some leftover aluminum tube from 
some sort of aviation product project or something. Andrew Andrew's Andrew's parents were in aviation, so he had this. I guess rare material at the time that was super, super strong. And, and they were kind of like, you know, a couple of kids are like, Hey, let's bend that into a handlebar. So I don't have to fix my bar every single, every time I crash. And that's yeah. really how it started. Renthal started as a trials brand. And out then, um, right? yeah, out of necessity. And then, um, and yeah, has just have never turned back since. And, and I'm just so impressed with like the technology and the things that are coming out of that building, which has been in the same spot since, yeah, since they graduated from Andrew's parents shed, They've been in Manchester, England that whole time. The brand's been around since 1969. And uh, yeah, we've gone through a fire. And I mean, we have machines in there that we still use today that we used 40 years ago because it's just the best way to make a sprocket still. Like mm-hmm. they don't make those machines anymore. So um, yeah, and just we have a, you know, the, you mentioned Fatbar 36. That really is is Renthal showing our, I would say it's, it's similar to like uh, Specialized S-Works or like the suit that Fox made for Craig this year. Mm-hmm. It's um. It wasn't a project that we were like, hey, we're going to sell thousands and millions of these. It was, we want to make the absolute best, sickest, lightest, strongest handlebar we can on this planet. Mm-hmm. And that's what Fat Bar 36 is. So um, I think it'll take a while to catch on. But to put it into perspective, the first inch and eighth handlebar, going back to Pro Taper, was introduced in 1991. And it wasn't until, I think, 2021 that every modern motocrossers finally came with that upsized handlebar right so maybe maybe 18 years from now or so every bar will every bike will have a fat bar 36 is what yeah. i hope <laughs> okay so beyond your uh, professional career your passion is redirected towards pedals right it is yeah so uh <clears throat> you you've made a serious go at this mountain bike racing thing yeah, again, it goes back to what I said at the beginning that anything I do, I just want to do it right. Like I'm not a, I'm not one toe in, half half ass type. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think my last year I raced Loretta's was 2021, and and I was just kind of like, you know what, this is this is a lot of work. You know, dirt bikes are a lot of work, right? And my wife was like, man, you're spending a lot of time in the garage for only a two to three hours of enjoyment at the track, and it's a full day, and it was it was hard on my schedule. So I kind of, um, yeah, I bought an e bike just to get something different to do and and dude it has just taken me down the rabbit hole and now i'm full on mountain bike guy i got a downhill bike now um and and it's replaced it for me like it's it's i just got tired of going to redbud and unadilla and like i've been to all these places it was i've been to gps and every supercross like i was i don't want to say a losing interest but yeah me personally i was losing a little bit of interest to continue to ride myself i'm getting older i didn't want to have that real big one that Mm -hmm. i've seen friends of mine have right like my buddy nick hayes who's a guy that i raced at loretta's a bunch of times he's you know he's had a awful injury and he has two young girls and he's paralyzed from the neck down like it breaks my heart to see that so i think to be respectful and responsible um to myself and my family like yeah i just fully transitioned it's the first year first time i think in 30 years i don't have a motorcycle in my garage okay how old are you 40. 40. <clears throat> so I got a Facebook memory pop up this morning while I was pooping, actually. Yeah. Looking at my phone and it said, nine years ago. And it was a picture of me and, you know, Masa, video Masa? Yeah. It was me and Masa at Southridge lining up for my very first ever cross country mountain bike race, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so before that, I had ridden for like a year. And I started riding a mountain bike because. <laughs> I went to my 
my primary care physician. He's this awesome, awesome Korean doctor that's super blunt and mm-hmm. but super cool. At the same time, he's like, hey, you haven't had a physical. And I'm, I was 45. And I'm like, well, dude, I don't want your finger in my butt. <laughs> yeah. And so he's, no, no, we don't even do that anymore. It's this other thing. But anyway, he, my blood test comes back. He goes, hey, dude, you're fat. Your blood pressure's high. Cholesterol's high. Blood sugar's high. You're pre-diabetic. Take all these pills, and here's a pamphlet on a vegan lifestyle. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I race motocross. It's the hardest sport in the world next to soccer. And he goes, you must not be very good. <laughs> but uh, basically, long story short, I took the pills for a few days. I went to a race at Paris and was leading, but I, the pills made me feel weird. Pulled off. was so mad. I went home, and I had an old mountain bike from the early 90s that I used to ride with my dad. Mm-hmm. Took it down. Road was like, I'm not going to take pills. I'm going to ride this bicycle until I get in shape. Yeah. Got hooked, right? Completely hooked. Uh, did the cross-country racing thing with very, I guess, non-existent success. One year I got uh, sixth at Sea Otter, like 70 guys. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, man, if I trained, I could be on the podium next year. Yeah. And so I hit up John Wesling. He trained me the next year for 12 weeks. I went in the 50-year-old class, and I was thinking, yeah, I'm podium for sure. Got 25th, because <laughs> the older guys are faster. Yeah. Right? So from that day, I was like, no more cross-country. I'm just going to ride for fun. And so I bought a dual-suspension bike and mm-hmm. tried to learn how to jump stuff. But <clears throat> the point I'm making is it's only nine years ago that I did my first cross-country race. Race for five years, so I think about it. I've only been like trying to go downhill fast and jumping for like four years now. Yeah. But for me, at 55, I'm getting better. And so for you, at 40, you're getting better every time you ride, right? Which is the most exciting thing. To it's f- exciting at this age. At this be age. Because yeah. we're slow on our motorcycle every year. But yep. Yep. like for me to be able to go to Whistler and do the pro lines, it's like a yeah. huge thrill, right? Yeah. So I completely <clears throat> understand, and I share your love of this mountain bike thing, because... For us, it's something new and it's something that we can improve at. It is. It is. It's, it's, to me, there's so many similarities and that's why I love enduro and downhill so much is because it's more about bike skill than it is just about mashing your legs, how XC mm-hmm. is. And I'm not built for that. And I've gone through genetic tests and done all these things to kind of see what my body's built for. And, and, and I'm with you. Like it's hard to find things at this age to continue to get better at. And that's something that I need in my life to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I want to be doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a, it's been kind of a health kick for me too, because, you know, I mentioned earlier, my dad had some health issues and he's since passed and his passing has really put a lot of things into perspective for me, tons of things. And, you know, we both mentioned that we went to the lab today, the local kind of, uh, wellness clinic that we have here in, in Marietta. And I get my blood tested every quarter and I'm very passionate about my health. And my wife is a, uh, fitness instructor and a nutritionist and we try to eat well and I, and and, you know, just riding and racing bicycles is my motivation to force me to work out and, and be healthy because mm-hmm. I want to compete. Like, I, I don't care about Strava. I want to go find a race to compete with on the day and try to be the best I can be at that moment. That's what the fun is for me is trying to, you know, like Sea Otter. I'll do Sea Otter later this year and it's April 24th or whatever. I want to be the best I can be on that day. And that's yeah. the fun for me, right, is all the the lead up to that. And, uh, and yeah, it's just, uh, it, it fits my, it fits my life better. It fits my wallet better. Motorcycles are expensive and bicycles granted are still expensive, but I still think it's less than motocross. 
And, um, and yeah, it's just, it's so much more enjoyment for less time in the garage. And obviously I'm still being, being, staying very close to motocross because Mm -hmm. of my job, but, but man, I love just the new places that bicycles have taken me. I went to Italy last year and did a UCI race just yeah. in Trentino just because I wanted to see what the highest level was. I want yeah. to see what it's like. What's a a, a world-class enduro like? And uh, man, like again, when I, when I say I, I'm tired of all the motocross places, all these new places you go on bicycles I've never been before and they're mm-hmm. pretty. They're mountains yeah. and, and they're, so I absolutely love it and it's kind of given me a second wind in life, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's important, I think, <clears throat> to always have a passion. Something I think that drives, so. something you wake up for and look forward to doing. For me, <clears throat> I'm still on the motorcycle just as much as I've ever been. Obviously, because you have to be alive. I have to be right. Yeah. Um, but I have waves of enthusiasm on a motorcycle. Like currently, I have dirt bike fever right now. Yeah. I can't ride enough. But I always like bicycles just the same. You know, I try to ride every day if, yeah. if weather permits, if time permits. Um, my little saying kind of backfired. I mean, I used to say, people like, well, why do you like bicycles so much? I'd say, well, dirt bikes are potentially hazardous to your health, but bicycles are good for your health, <laughs> right? This is when I was cross-country riding, right? right? Well, since then, I've broken my neck on a mountain bike and broken my collarbone, yeah, broken my your hand. hand. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's like, uh, it's, it's crazy. It's just the endorphin release you get from... Riding anything two wheels is just amazing. And I think yeah. it's a it's a blessed life that both of us have lived, right? Because uh, you know, you went to college, you finished, I went to college, got kicked out, <laughs> you know, got hired by cycling it was just by chance, you know? Mm. But I still wake up and I go, Man, yeah, it sucks doing budgets and stuff with my wife for swapping my life, but at the end of it all, I've never really woken up and said, Oh man, it's Monday, I gotta go to yeah. It's like my job is my passion. <laughs> my passion is my job. My hobbies are intertwined with my job. And, and yeah. you've had the same fortune, I think. Yeah, honestly, and it is fortune. Um, and I think you realize that later in life as, as you go through life experiences, right? You really begin to value um, the things that you can do. And, and, and I'm with you. Like, I'm addicted to things on two wheels. And yeah. if I can't do those, like, I will not be a pleasant person to be around. I, I can promise you that. Yeah. Um, it's the, it's a release for me. And, and, and like you, I try to go riding at least, at least two, three times a week, just because mm-hmm. I'm a better person after I ride, honestly, like yeah. I'm in a better mood. I can stay focused more at work. So it is, um, it's an addiction. It's like heroin in the vein for me. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I love, I love it. Nice. Well, hey, Paul, thanks for uh, coming in. I know you have some meeting or something coming up. I do. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was awesome to hear your story. And obviously, I've known you forever, but I didn't know everything. So, yeah, uh, guys, thanks for uh, checking out the midweek podcast presented by our friends at factorybacking.com. And uh, thanks again, Paul, for coming in. Yeah, cheers. See you next time. Cool. Rad, dude. Very cool. <laughs>